If you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. If I'm correct, next Sunday actually marks the beginning of our third year in, God, in the Luke's, Luke's Gospel. So we're making headway. And if the Lord tarries, we will finish in perhaps another year or so. Don't hold me to that. But it's been a real delight for me, just the discipline of going through books, this book in particular, uh, chapter by chapter, section by section, paragraph by paragraph, and to do the work necessary to bring a message from God's Word from text that, to be honest with you, I never would have chosen, were I just simply going through, I want to preach on this text. (laughs) Many of these I would not have picked, but uh, wonderful fruit, I think, has been born to us over these past couple of years in going through this. Well, as we look at Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, we have to think about it again in the context of where we were last Lord's Day, and that was, of course, the last part of chapter 16, and there we had the rich man in Hades, the rich man in hell. And it certainly gives perspective to what we're considering today in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 17. And that would be this. If such a fate, if such a horrible fate, as we considered past last Lord's Day, is truly possible. If there be such a place of torment, and contrarily, if there be such a place of blessing, and bliss as we saw with Lazarus. What responsibility is laid upon us to do all that we possibly can to avoid such a destiny as well as do all that we can to assist others in avoiding such a destiny of an eternal damnation, of an eternal suffering and torment in hell. And so with that in mind, I think it brings us a little bit of perspective on what we are seeing here in chapter 17. Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? And properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. 
He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. I think if I were to survey among our number here this morning, we could all say that it's certainly a common thought or a common experience in the midst of our trials that we face in our lives, the difficulties that are upon us many times when we see something coming that we know is inevitable. It's a trial that we know we must face, that we are going to have to go through. We get there or we see it coming, the thought certainly passes through many of our minds. I need more than what I have right now if I'm going to go through this with any measure of success. You ever been there? Thought, this trial is more than I can bear. I trust that's a common experience. If it's not, I'm the only one that falters like that, and I'll preach to myself this morning. (laughs) Because I'm there many times. When the trials, when the fires are there, and I'm thinking, Lord, I need more than what I've got if I'm going to walk through this trial with any measure of success, any measure of victory, and come out on the other side and say that there's any measure of sanctification taking place. You know, Jesus' disciples here, They've heard the words of what he said here in the very first part of chapter 17 about the inevitability of these stumbling blocks coming. Then the brother who sins and if he sins against you seven times in a day and he comes to you seven times saying, I repent, you forgive him. You know, the disciples conclusion to that was. Lord, we need more. Than what we've got. If we're possibly. Going to live up to this. Life. To this level of expectation. And so their words to Jesus. Were. We need more. Increase our faith. Increase. Our faith. And I believe Jesus. Answered that prayer. With his response, not as they might have expected, because I don't think what he says to them was, here, I'm going to increase your faith. Actually, what he says to them in, in verse 6, if you had faith like a mustard seed, I don't believe this is a rebuke. There are many times that the Greek language allows us when we come to the to the words, if such were the case, it can be it can be understood as this is, in fact, the case. And so I think this is one of those situations that it permits us to actually translate it as this, that Jesus is actually saying, in effect. Since you do have this measure of faith. That it's the nature of every child in God, child of God, if you are a believer You are given a measure of faith. You are given a measure of faith to come to Christ. What measure of faith was necessary for you to come to the place to abandon all of your hopes in yourself? 
all of your self-righteousness, all of your attempts to do something to make you pleasing and acceptable to God, to abandon all that and to say, there's nothing in that. All is in Christ. To embrace Christ. To express and to demonstrate faith in Christ. See, there's a measure of faith given to all God's people. That's the essence of what takes place when we are converted. That we are granted the gifts of repentance and faith. So I don't believe here that Jesus is rebuking and saying to his disciples, oh, you don't even have the faith of a little tiny mustard seed. I think he's in fact encouraging them. That since you have the faith of a mustard seed, you don't need an increase in faith. That's not the issue here. You have that much faith. Rather, what he's directing me to is to put this gift, put this measure of faith that is yours as a child of God into action. Express it. So really the apostles request here is is a confession. It's the need that they're expressing the need to see this faith at work in their lives and in their hearts because they're hearing the words of Jesus. They're saying, Lord, this is this is more than we can take on. We can't live like this. And so I think it's a request and a confession that likewise we do well to join in with the apostles. That we long for this kind of faith. We long for a faith that is in action in our lives. A faith that is in action in the fire and in the world. And knowing that God gives to us such faith. My my word to you this morning would be that we long to see such faith at work in us. See, there's no place for indifference to spiritual issues. But the long that God's work of grace would be manifested in our lives in such a way that we can read the words of Jesus, hear the words of Jesus, as the disciples did, and say, This is what I want. This is the faith that I want to be true in my heart and in my life. What kind of faith then should we long for? Should we long and desire to be visible in our lives? And we're going to look at our text this morning. And I think three things that we can see in our text. That give us an idea of what the, the disciples as imperfectly as their request may have been. Their heart's desire was right. And let this be what we long for. And let this be the prayer of our heart. And first of all, that the faith that we see manifested, the faith that we see expressed in our lives, that in the world it's a faith that stands firm against temptation. It stands firm in the, the day of trial when sin comes at us in a storm with all of its might. They were able by the grace of God, by looking unto Christ, looking unto our Lord, to stand firm against sin and against temptation. 
Jesus, he prepares his disciples well, doesn't he? He prepares his disciples well for the life that they are called to live. But it's a life that's not lived in a vacuum. It's not even a life that is lived in a world that is neutral towards you. Rather, we live in a world that is sin-filled. It is a world that is devil-influenced. It is a fallen, corrupt world. And so Jesus, when he speaks here in verse 17... He speaks of these stumbling blocks or these temptations to sin. Some of your translations may have in verse one. He says it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to him through whom they come. The word that is translated there in the NASB is stumbling blocks and or temptations to sin in some of the newer translations. The word is from the Greek word standalone in the, the verb form that is Escandalizo. But it, one writer explains it like this when he speaks of these stumbling blocks. He says, It is a death trap. It is a death trap which is baited so that when the bait is touched, the stick holding the bait springs the trap, and one is killed by a scandalon, by a death trap. And here, of course, spiritually, Thus landing in hell like the rich man of chapter 16. So, and this writer takes issue with some of the translations that sound like the offenses or some. But it's much more than that. It's a death trap. It's a malicious intent to bring destruction to someone. And he speaks, Jesus speaks of it, of the inevitability. He says it is inevitable because of the world in which we live. It is inevitable. It's the nature of the world in which we live because of the devilish influence that is there. Because of the weaknesses, wickedness of men's hearts, there will always be these scandalons, these death traps seeking to bring us, bring us to destruction, not only the destruction in this life, but an eternal destruction. It also speaks of the evilness of these scandalons, of these death traps. He says, these things are so wicked. They are so evil. They are so opposed to the holy, righteous intent and design of God. that He pronounces a woe upon those who would be involved in such a thing. He says in verse 1, but woe to him. Woe to him. There's the indictment from God himself. As opposed to the, to the pronouncing of blessing, there is the pronouncing of woe, of ruin, of destruction upon those who would be involved in something, something like this. So evil. So wicked. So against the intents of God. Jesus says in verse 2, it would be better for someone who is guilty of these things. It would have been better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Well, how does that sound to you for a happy ending to life? 
To have the millstone tied around your neck where there's no escape, there's no release, and to be cast into the sea, brought down to the bottom of the sea to, to certain death. Is that how any of you have thought, well, I'd like to die like this? I mean, don't we think about the way we like to die? Haven't you thought about that? I have. I like to be quietly on my bed, <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> you know, and I've read of pastors who say, man, they want to they go die. They want to go from the pulpit. I don't know about that. <laughs> but the picture here that he gives is deliberate. This is a horrid fate. To have a millstone cast about your neck and to be thrown into the sea to be brought to, to ruin, to destruction, and to death. But Jesus says this, that is to be preferred. That is better. That is to be preferred over the eternal fate of one who does such evil as causing, of bringing these death traps these scandalons into the path of someone else. So it's in fact, Jesus, as though Jesus were saying, if you had these choices laid out in front of you, choice number one is to lay out a death trap in front of someone to bring them to ruin and destruction. Choice number two is you have a millstone hung around your neck and you be cast to the sea. Which one do you think is better? Jesus says, this one's better. Better to have that millstone tied around your neck and cast into the sea to your own destruction than to lead someone else to destruction. Because of what awaits you, the fate that awaits you if you were guilty of such a sin. It certainly gives cause that we have a holy fear of causing someone to sin, doesn't it? God's verdict against those who do such thing is woe. Ruin. Destruction. Is what is appropriate. And what is due and other than apart from the grace of God, it is your reward. So the reality is, because of the nature of the world in which we live, because of the wickedness of men's heart, Jesus says it's inevitable. There will always be these, these death traps. So, verse 3, be on your guard. Be on your guard. There are enemies of God out there. And the enemies of God are opposed to Him and they manifest their opposition to God by oppo opposing God's people. By opposing the church. They are bent on rebellion against God and the destruction of His people. So the disciples, they hear this of Jesus. This is the world in which you live. It's inevitable that these death traps are going to be laid out before you. And so the disciples... They hear this, they might well wonder, man, do I have a faith that can stand firm against this? What prayer do I have to, to survive in a world that's full of these death traps? 
He scandalons. Increase our faith, Lord. We want the kind of faith that stands firm in the day of temptation, when the battles come, when it's raging either within us or from without, that when it comes, we're able to stand firm because our faith is in the God who is great and who is faithful. That's the kind of faith we want. Our comfort that we have is that the measure of faith that Christ gives His people is sufficient. We have it. Faith to believe in the sovereignty of our God who controls all the affairs of men, who even controls the works and the deeds, the intents and the actions of evil men. He controls their hearts. All their actions, as evil as they may be, they're not outside the sovereign plan and work of God. And to Faith to embrace God's promises of His presence, always to be with us, never to forsake us, of His protection. You see, we don't need here to have great faith. We just simply need to have faith in a great God, don't we? I don't need a lot of faith if my God's great. And see, the virtue of faith is not... In and of itself, what makes faith any virtue at all is the object it finds its refuge in. And the object of our faith is God. It is Christ. That is what makes faith mighty and powerful. It is God. It's not men. So, how are you preparing? Are you prepared for the evil day? You know, Paul speaks there in the book of Ephesians, you know, to stand firm. And so that in the evil day, you may, if nothing else, stand. Maybe you're not making any progress, but you're not being, you're not flat on your back either. How are you preparing for the evil day, for the day of temptation, for the days of battle? And I know that we have temptations upon us every day but there are those seasons there are those times that it comes with such a fierceness and such an intensity that it seems that it takes all that we've got and then some how do we face that what hope do we have that we can stand firm in the day of trial in the day of temptation to sin we must meditate upon the promises of god to consider what God has revealed to us of Himself, of His of His own character in the Word of God. We must be those who are grounding ourselves in the unalterable truths of Scripture. So that we what we affirm, what we embrace in the light, we do not deny in the darkness. In the days that we can see so clearly. We, we affirm those things. We build a firm foundation. So that the days of darkness, when all the clouds of darkness and doubt come in, we don't begin to deny everything. We prepare for the evil day in the day before it comes. So that we might stand firm. Say, well, it's too late for me. 
I've already failed. I've already bombed out. Now the day of temptation and trial came, and man, I just went headlong in. So what you got to say for me? I've got to say for you the same thing I have to say for me because many times I've gone headlong in as well. And that is this. That the truths of the sovereignty and the faithfulness and the character of God are still there to be embraced. There's nothing else apart from what is revealed to us of God in the Scriptures. I don't have a plan B once you fall in. Well, I didn't do it beforehand. What do I do now? I'm in here. Well, you go back and where you failed. You confess your sin. You, re- you repent of, of your failures and you begin to embrace the, scr- the truths of Scripture again to ground yourselves in what the Scripture reveals to you, the faithfulness of the character of God. You always come back to the Word of God that brings us back to the God of the Word. That's where you go. If you failed, and what one of us in this room would dare to say, we've not at some time or another. Confess our unbelief. Pray for the grace to believe. To believe that what God says when He speaks of being faithful is true. To believe that what God says when He reveals Himself as one who is sovereign, it is true. To believe what God says, we considered a few weeks ago from the book of Hebrews, where we see the trials and the tribulations that come upon us, are upon us as a discipline from a loving Father. To believe those things, that's true. Asking for God's grace. Oh Lord, I want to believe this is true. Help me, oh God, in my unbelief to believe that is so. And even sometimes to follow the example that's given to us in the, in the Old Testament Scriptures by the psalmist. The times when it's appropriate to, to exhort ourselves as the psalmist would speak to his soul. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in your God. Sometimes we just need to do that, don't we? And I think I've mentioned to you, you know, Martin, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on spiritual depressions, he talks about that. And, you know, the problem with so many of us, instead of talking to ourselves, we're listening to ourselves. And we need to talk to ourselves and say, what in the world is wrong with you, soul? Hope in your God. What else do you need? Your God, your Savior, your Christ. Hope in Him. You need something else? Although we long for and we pray for such faith. Faith that stands firm against temptation. But also to long for faith in the church. And I use the word church here, speaking of just the, the broad sense of all those who are in Christ. And that is a faith that shows charity toward the brethren, toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. In a world of such evil, in a world of such death traps as revealed, Jesus reveals there, He gives instructions to His apostles, to His disciples regarding their duty Toward one another. 
Note the contrast here. The contrast of a world that seeks to ruin and destroy even its own. As opposed to the church where we are not only not indifferent one toward another, but rather we are to seek to help and seek to restore one another. Listen, we don't have the right, we don't have the place to be indifferent toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not our prerogative. We're given instructions of how we are to to come alongside them and to show charity. So while on guard, verse 3, he says there, be on your guard. So while you are on guard against these death traps, against these scandalons that are there inevitably in the world, watch also for your brother. Verse 3, if your brother sins, you rebuke him. And if he repents, you forgive him. So for the sake of his own soul, with the hope of repentance, the hope that there is a deliverance, the hope that there is a restoration brought. That is the design to bring bring him to repentance, which he articulates there at the end of verse three. Then Jesus raises the stakes a little bit higher, doesn't he? I mean, hey, I can handle this. Somebody sins, rebuke them. If they say, forgive me. And they repent, forgive them. You can do that. <laughs> well, he didn't stop there, did he? And it's assumed that the first sin and offense would be against you. Someone sins against you. You rebuke him, verse 3. Then he says in verse 4, very clearly. No question about who this sin is against. If he sins against you, seven times in one day now I'm beginning to think after about three I'm going to put some distance between me and this guy (laughs) but this brother he sins against you seven times in one day and he returns to you seven times saying I repent forgive him now that's when the disciples say Lord we need more than what we've got right now Increase our faith. This isn't me, and that's what is exactly right. It's not you. This is grace. This is the grace of God in action in the hearts of His people. And it's not that we take this seven as a literal. Whatever number of offenses come, you're willing to say, I forgive. You don't sock Him in the jaw on number eight. You forgive again. Forgive. What are the issues that we weigh here? Well, there's the issue here, first of all, that we fear. We fear for the souls of our brother. We fear for the soul of our brother who has been taken in by this death trap. And he continually is sinning. And it's even a sin that's brought against us. That we fear for his soul. So we continue to call him to repentance as necessary. And if he comes and he repents, we forgive him. Secondly, we're forced to remember the magnitude of our own offenses against God, aren't we? 
Then we look at the sins that are committed against us. As many as seven may be and as intense as they may be to us, they dull in comparison. They're nothing in comparison. They're not worthy to be compared to the offenses, the crimes, the sins that we have committed against God. They pale in comparison. So we are compelled here to remember the magnitude of my own offenses against God. And I have been forgiven. Therefore, the reality is, I can forgive. And Jesus makes that point, doesn't He? In other places. If you you forgive, you won't forgive, you're not forgiven. So the fruit of being forgiven, understanding the the magnitude of my offenses against God is a forgiving spirit toward my brother. Remembering the magnitude of my offenses. Thirdly, an issue used away in this matter is that we have the duty to reflect the merciful and the gracious character of God. Ties into the to the previous, but we just simply were to be godlike. And as God extends mercy and is gracious to show forth His character, we extend mercy. We show grace and forgiveness. And all that, knowing our own capacity for those sins and worse. Do you not believe yourself capable of committing such sins yourself? I know without question I am capable of sins much worse than sins committed against me. I know that. I don't have to search it out and question. I know that because I know this heart. And another issue to weigh in this matter is that we are not to be overcome by what is the potential death trap, the potential scandalon of unforgiveness. See, there is your stumbling block. Will I forgive or will I not? If not, then you have in fact, been taken, you have been entrapped and ensnared by this death trap. So part of this being on your guard in verse 3 is going to be beware of an unwillingness to forgive. Beware of a bitterness in your heart towards someone and you're unwilling to forgive someone for an offense, for a sin they've committed against you. See, our enemy, he's smart, isn't he? He's wise. Subtle. And he puts those death traps out there where we least expect them. I mean, after all, we don't expect to have to forgive a brother, someone in the church, seven times, do we? This is the church. This is God's people. 
These are people that have been transformed by the grace of God. They've been given new hearts. They love God. They want to live for the glory of God. They love Christ. They're committed to the Word of God. They're committed to walk in obedience to the Word of God. You don't expect that in the context of the church that you're going to have to forgive time after time after time after time. And most of us have been through the reality of such places, such churches, local bodies, that you know exactly that's the truth of it. You better be willing to forgive within the church. A couple of reasons. One, you've always got within the mix, you've always got tares. And there are some that, although they have every appearance of being in the church, they're not in the church. The other side of it is that you have different people in different places and people young in the faith and they're still doing some of these things that you're thinking, man, what are you doing? Young in the faith. And then other people just seem to have these blind spots. They've been in the faith for years. They've got so many errors in their lives. And mainly, man, they're right down the line. Here, 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 here. I wish my life was so was so structured and so well well designed that I was walking with the Lord and, and my life as this person seems to be. And then they've got this huge glaring blind spot. You're thinking, how do they miss that? Oh, wait a minute, I don't have a blind spot. Well, that's because you don't see it. You're blind to it. I know I do. I just don't know what it is. I think I know what some of them are. But we have them. And so there's the necessity within the context of the church among brothers and sisters in Christ to express forgiveness. You know, and the disciples' response to that was, Lord, we need more than that. And the reality is, it's in the church today. We need more than that, don't we? Because it hurts. Because this is a community of God's people where the the law is love. And when someone violates that law, when you have given yourself to loving someone and someone returns your love with resentment or maliciousness or hatred or whatever the case may be, it hurts. And any time you open yourself up by loving someone, you open yourself up for potential hurt. But we have no choice. The other option is to guard yourself. I'm not going to open it. I'm not going to be vulnerable. And you disobey the Scripture, and that is to love. Love is a willingness to be vulnerable, and it hurts. And so we must at times say, I forgive. And beware of the death trap of unforgiveness. The enemy's glad to make it there. If he can't get you out in the world, he'll put it right in the church. Let you stumble over this one. Into hell. How great a faith is needed to show such charity and grace to the brethren. To let our cry be, Lord, increase our faith in this regard. Give us such faith. Let us be seeing such faith in action in our lives that it's willing to say, I forgive regardless of the nature or the number of the offenses that are brought against me. It's 
faith to believe that God's way is right. And it is perfect and it's faith to believe that God works repentance in the hearts of those that we think would never genuinely repent. He can do that. Can't he? The assurance that you have that God can bring the most obstinate people to true, genuine repentance is the fact that He's brought you to repentance. He can get someone else just as easily. Faith to believe that should God not work repentance, genuine repentance, where you seem to have an insincerity and a repeating of offenses against you, that even if there's not a genuine repentance, which is a work of God, that forgiveness is still possible. You know, some have debated, can you forgive someone if they don't repent? If they don't repent, and the answer is yes. Now, they will not be free by having come and asked for your forgiveness, but you can be free from a spirit of bitterness toward them. As far as I am concerned, I do not hold this offense they've committed against me, against them. I forgive May God grant us such faith that is charitable, charitable to our falling brethren. Because they're just like us. And third, that we have a longing for a faith in our hearts that stays humble before God. Jesus concludes this section here in verses 7 through 10 with a, a parable, a parable we call it of the unprofitable, the un, unprofitable servant, unworthy slaves. Notice how he begins this parable in verse 7. He's addressing the apostles as though we're speaking to them. He just says in verse 7, which one of you, just imagine you, which one of you having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, We'll say to him when he's come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat. Which one of you would do that? If you had a slave working for you out in the field. Well, they don't know the answer to that. Well, he's a slave. He's a servant. I'm not going to say come in. He's working for me. So that's the understood there. But when he changes here from first to, or from second to third person, verse 8, but will he not, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. And they would respond to that. Yeah, that's well, that's what you'd expect. A servant comes in, he's been out working in the field, laboring all day long. He's exhausted. He comes into his master. The master say, hey, man, you worked hard. Take it easy. Sit down. Oh, no, I'm hungry. Fix my meal. Get yourself in some clean clothes and come and serve me. Take care of me. Then when you're done with that, do what you need to do for yourself. And they would understand that's the way things are done. So he enters the house. He's laboring in the field. He's not invited to sit down to eat. Rather, he's prepared for the master first. And there's nothing in that, verse 9, that should be deemed as being praiseworthy. Verse 9 he or the, the master does not thank the slave. It doesn't come at man. Boy, you have worked hard in the field, and you, and you've come in. And you've then you fixed me a, a wonderful meal, and he didn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded. 
does he? I didn't thank him. And the answer to that would be, all those hearing him, of course not. You don't thank the slave for doing what he's supposed to do. It's his duty. Then he gets to the application. Verse 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, commanded by God, by Christ, say this, we are unworthy slaves. We've only done that which we ought to have done. Now, certainly, this is one of those pictures in, the, in this parable where we see a contrast Although the master here is regarded as a God type, it's a contrast. It's one of those opposites that we see here that God is not to be regarded as this type of an individual. God is not like that, is He? God is much more gracious. God is one who is compassionate. God is a rewarder of men. God is one who even commends. Is that what we all long for to hear the words of the Lord? Well done! You good and faithful servant. So this master, although he's a God type, he's not a revelation of the character of God. That God is in in so many ways different from this master would be. This human master would be. But, our attitude regarding our labors in God's kingdom should be, as are stated in verse 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. We are unworthy slaves. And there's different translations. Some say... Some translations refer to it as the unprofitable slaves. But the idea that's conveyed is this. We are deserving of no special thing, thanks. We're not deserving of any special thanks for what we've done because we've only done what we were under obligation to do before God. There's no place here for boasting. You know, the apostles say, Lord, give us more faith. You know what happens? The Lord gives you more faith. We start bragging about our faith. There's no place for boasting in the service of God. You've gained no merit. You've no advantage with God because of any good work you may do for the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of God. God is not your debtor. He owes you no words of thanksgiving for what you've done. And in fact, we understand, as we've talked about here on so many occasions before, a right understanding of grace at work within the hearts of God's people realizes that any virtue or any good that I do is because of His grace, His work in me and through me so that I'm more indebted to God after I do something for Him than I was before I did something before Him. Because I only did it by the provision of His grace. So you don't pay off a debt to God. The best we ever do 
in our Christian life is increase our debt to God. Because if it were not for His continued grace upon us, we'd do nothing. And if you can live that way, in any way in the world, find merit, you've missed something here. There is no merit. There's nothing. It is all of God. It is all of God's grace. So, for a heart, for a faith, In the heart that stays humble before God, that doesn't go around complaining and thinking in my own spark, my own heart, my own spirit. You know, I really think that I deserve better than this. You ever been there with God? I think I deserve better than this. Or we start that that mind game what have I done that God's allowing this? to stay humble before God and realize I don't deserve any more rewards from God. I've got the promise of heaven. I've got forgiveness of sins. I should labor faith in the kingdom of God and it's simply what I ought to do and I get it's all said and done. I've got more failures and I do victories anyway. I certainly don't need to expect that God owes me anything because He doesn't. To have a spirit of humility about ourselves before God. God, give me that kind of a faith. The kind of faith that says, God can be everything, I can be nothing, and it's okay. That's a good relationship. To recognize my indebtedness to Him, my dependence upon Him, how quickly that pride and sense of merit arises within our hearts, doesn't it? I've done this, so why is God allowing this? <laughs> because He doesn't deal with you on the basis of merit. You don't have any. It's grace. It is grace. So how's your faith? Is it in action? Is your faith an active faith? Is it a faith that in the world, it's the days of temptation, when the battle comes, it's able to stand firm? Is it a faith that in the context of the church and believers, of brothers and sisters in Christ, that you are longing and willing to do all that you can to, to restore your brother, not only in relationship to you, but to God ultimately? By being charitable and showing forgiveness by exhorting, calling them to repentance, rebuking if necessary. And is it a faith that in your own heart that it sees the grace of God in every good that you do? And you can just say, I am an unprofitable servant. I don't deserve anything for what I've done in the kingdom of God. If there's anything to be given, it is a praise to God. For any good that I have done. A prayer for faith in action. That's what I want. A faith that's lived out in a world when temptation, when the death traps to sin are set.
faith that that wins out in the church. Because it's willing to show charity and forgiveness. And there have been times in the church I've been uncharitable. And I've been unforgiving. I said, Lord, I want the kind of faith that does this. And I want the kind of faith that in the heart there's a genuine spirit of humility because I'm always, I'm always aware of my dependence upon God. I need Him. And apart from Him, I can do nothing. No good thing. It is all His grace. All in Christ. Let that be our prayer. As we pray, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, just put the faith that You've given to us. Put it in action. That we can have a faith that's visible in the world, in the church, and in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess to You that We've believed a lot more in ourselves than we have in you, and we've and we fall on our face time after time. Oh Lord, we want you to channel our faith Godward, Christward. Simply to believe that in the day of, of temptation that there's a way of escape. And to believe that righteousness is better than sin. To believe that in the church when we are sinned against by our brothers or sisters that forgiveness is right, is possible. And in our own hearts that there just simply be this quiet conviction We deserve nothing. We've done nothing that has made you a debtor to us. We've done nothing that requires that you respond to us in a particular way. But you have poured out your grace abundantly, far beyond all that we deserve. Lord, give us a heart of humility and a heart of gratitude. Lord, we pray that you would take these truths that we've considered today. Lord, take what is of you and work in our hearts. Lord, take what is merely of me and let it be taken away by the wind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.